It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is an international adoptee from Panama who grew up in Ohio. She has a connection to Adoption Network Cleveland that spans decades back as a social worker. Her name is Sandra, but affectionately called Sandy. In this episode, she expresses the tremendous value ANC and Betsy Norris Season 4, Episode 54 on this podcast, provided her through the years. I met her in March after giving a presentation on Adoption Network Cleveland's Monday Evening Speaker Series. She reached out to me after listening to this podcast in the hopes of sharing a part of her adoption journey. In this episode, she covers a variety of subjects that are of great interest to me, like identity, ethnicity, search angels, and being in reunion with original family members. Most of Sandy's life has been in the Midwest, but she returned to the DMV, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia area, about a year and a half ago. Her 30-year career as a social worker has included time in mental health, adoption, and foster care. She has been in reunion with her birth mother and maternal family for 18 years. Allow me to introduce you to someone who affirms another reason why it's important to stay connected to the adoption community, because I never know who I will meet, who will touch my life with their story in ways I could never imagine. Sandy, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm doing well, too. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you for so many reasons. I know that we met through the Adoption Network Cleveland's Monday Evening Speaker Series. You attended there yes. when I was a guest. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was such a good time. It was an opportunity for me to meet more people in the community and let them know what I'm doing with the podcast. It was just a pleasure to be invited. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it and have just kind of reconnected with Adoption Network Cleveland in recent months. So I'm really excited to talk to you today as well. And you're an adoptee and you're an international adoptee. You were born in Panama. Correct. Yes. Well, I think we should start with Adoption Network Cleveland and how you got involved with that organization many years ago. Sure. So this was mid-90s. I was working in adoption. I kind of happened upon a job as an adoption social worker. I was in my mid-20s, not really knowing what I was doing with my career. I just needed to be working. I followed a coworker from a mental health agency to an adoption agency, not even knowing what kind of work I was stepping into, just that I wanted to leave where I was. It was my supervisor at the time. Again, I was an adoption social worker. I was really doing like home studies for prospective adoptive parents when I started out. And my supervisor had sent me to an adoption network, Cleveland. It wasn't one of the support group meetings, but it was some kind of a workshop or something. So I was sent there as a professional. I found Adoption Network Cleveland as a professional. I stayed with Adoption Network Cleveland as an adoptee. Mm. At that time, I want to say that they were doing something to provide uh, education and training for people who were working in adoption to make them more competent on adoption-related issues, know kind of what you're looking for. It was a training in that sense. But when I really learned about the organization and everything, I started attending general meetings, some of the support group meetings and all of that. Of course, I I met Betsy very early on and was completely captivated with her and her story. Um, So like I said, I stayed with Adoption Network Cleveland 
as an adoptee. Yeah, Betsy Norris is a pretty special person and been involved in the community for decades. So, yeah. She, she is. We appreciate her. So I guess we could just jump right into wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about your journey as an adoptee. Sure. So as you said, I was born in Panama. Of course, I didn't know that. Well, I do feel like I knew that I was had lived in Panama as a very, very young child. But there was a time I specifically remember my mother telling me that I was adopted. And even prior to that, during preschool, there was a day that my mom came and picked me up, my mom being my adoptive mother, came and picked me up from preschool. And I can remember kind of all the cars lined up, all the parents coming in to pick up their kiddos and whatever. And I got in the car and, you know, there were no seatbelts or anything back then. Um, kind of slid across that front seat next to my mom and asked her, why doesn't my face look like your face? And I was probably three or four years old at that point. And I think my perspective in my mind at three, four years old was God had kind of made molds of faces and put the big one on the mom or dad and put the little one on the kid, but they actually had the same face. And I knew that my face was not my mother's. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall her response specifically, but it was kind of like, oh, you don't think we look alike? I mean, she kind of was a little evasive. Whatever it was, it was enough to satisfy me for the time. Maybe another year or so, four or five years old, I really started harassing my mother for a little brother. Harassed her, I don't know what the time frame was, days, weeks, I'm not sure. But at some point, she said to me, there's not going to be a little brother. (laughs) I can remember her even like showing me a scar on her stomach and explaining, you know, I'm not able to have children. There's not going to be a little, a little brother. I mean, really thinking I was going to put an end to that conversation. Eventually I came back to her and said, okay, well then if that's the case, then adopt me a little brother. I'm real persistent. This has got to happen. I don't know what the problem is. So I think my mother being very empathic, she really took that cue from me that I had used this word. So I understood it and it was, I had used it in very kind of normalized. I didn't have any qualms about it. Just go adopt me a brother. What's the problem? (laughs) She, she definitely picked right up on that and said, let's sit down and have a conversation. And that was when she told me that I was adopted I can kind of remember sort of like my visual senses. I remember where we were, what the room looked like. I remember all of that. I don't remember a lot of specifics about the conversation, but she told me that I was adopted. I believe she told me at that point that my birth mother was very young and could not take care of me. And I began to cry. And I remember her asking, why are you crying? And I kind of sobbed through, I don't know four or five years old, I really don't know. I mean, I think kind of overwhelmed that this new door I didn't even know was there had been opened. I do know that I was not sad, but I just cried. And so from that point on, I think adoption for me was, it was very normalized for me. I don't know why. I don't recall knowing other people who were adopted at that time. Of course, I've had peers Um, and other people throughout my growing up that I would meet that were adopted. And I would tell people it was not a secret. And then throughout, you know, preteen years and adolescence, I would always go back to my mom and ask her more questions. Well, what do you know? Every time I went to my mother to ask, she would answer me. She was always honest. She gave me what she knew. How much did she know? Maybe mid to late teens, she gave me my adoption paperwork, which actually had my birth name on it and my birth mother's name and my maternal biological grandparents' names. Mm. I don't remember having that before, but she said when she gave it to me that she had shown me that before. I'm sure at some younger age, it just didn't mean the same thing or didn't register. I can remember knowing that about teens. That must have felt pretty good to have so much information. It really did. It it just, it felt like a gift. It yeah. was just, wow. 
And I remember, again, I'm thinking probably late teens, you know, there were a lot of talk shows. There were a lot of, this was like Phil Donahue era, not even Oprah. People doing surgeon reunion. Somebody found whatever. And I can remember like writing letters to different talk shows, all of that. And my mother was always, always, always very supportive. She never discouraged me. She never gave me warnings. She just supported me. Um, And I think through the years I've asked her why. And she always just said, I just felt like if it were me, I would want to know. There Um, you go. Yeah. Yeah. I never felt that my desire to know was a threat to her. And she certainly never communicated that to me, either directly or indirectly, that she only supported it. So now you're really thinking about the whole search part. Do you start searching before you become an adult? I know you were talking a little bit about um, the era, you know, the Phil Donahue. I can remember the pre Oprah era too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you're seeing these shows. And so maybe that's kind of planting a seed also for you to find your original family. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk about search, I certainly had no idea how to search in another country. So my mother very early on told me that she had adopted me through an attorney, the family, which was my mom my father, my adoptive father, and then a brother and sister who are my adoptive father's biological children from a previous marriage. So when I say the family was living in Panama, that's who it was. My mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. He was Air Force, and so they were stationed there and living there. My mother contacted an attorney while they were there and they adopted me. I was placed with them at 11 months. I think the adoption happened, you know, was like finalized within the year. But what she told me all throughout my childhood, what she had been told was that my mother was very young, like teenager, young teenager even, possibly had other kids, so could not take care of me. My father, my biological father was possibly Haitian. That was really all that she knew. I think as I pressed her through the years, she told me that she had gone to a Catholic orphanage, that this attorney had taken her to this Catholic orphanage in Panama. In the adoption community, you talk about being chosen, and we're always told that we're chosen. And in that sense, I very much was chosen. So she came to this Catholic orphanage with the adoption attorney and saw a number of children and told him which one she wanted to adopt, which was me. But when it came time to actually have me placed with her, she was given directions to travel to this house. It was way out. If she remembers it, she had no idea where she was going, just showed up at this house. There was a woman there and several children, including me. I think I'm jumping ahead in the story, but as we later learned, that was my grandmother. So kind of back on to how the search happened. Yeah, my early searching was just kind of writing out to people because I had no idea how to do this in Panama. Fast forward to the age of the Internet. In about 97, I got my first computer. I was stay-at-home mom with my two boys started, you know, this whole internet thing is brand new. It just opens up all kinds of possibilities. I had been in Cleveland, had been part of Adoption Network Cleveland for a long time, had sat through a lot of reunion stories, including Betsy, where I would listen to them. And again, I would just kind of cry, (laughs) happy for people, but really feeling like that's never going to happen for me. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And so about 1998, I found a website called Panamanios Alrededor del Mundo, which translates to Panamanians from around the world. And again, this was early internet days, so before Facebook, there were a lot of what we would now call social media pages, but they were all very specific on what they were geared towards, as opposed to like a Facebook where you can find every interest, every everything, right? 
So I found this website and I looked at the names of the, I guess like the members, the people who were registered on this website, and I collected email addresses for every person whose name was Rodriguez on this website because I knew that that was my birth name. And I sent a mass email to all of them. Wow. <laughs> I have no yeah. idea how many people it was. Yeah, I was going to say, that was a lot, I'm sure. Yes. So, I, I mean, let's say 20 people. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I sent this email. I started in Spanish saying, my name is, I'm in Ohio. I'm searching for, this is my mother's name. My Spanish is not very good. And then the rest of it I wrote in English. You know, I know that there are lots of Rodriguez's in Panama. And so we're probably not related. But if any of these names sound familiar to you, or if you think you can help me in any way, mm -hmm. um, please respond. And I did get a lot of responses like, yeah, that's nice. Uh -huh, good luck. Um, <laughs> polite. But I got one response from a gentleman, and I will pronounce his name more with my Spanish accent, um, Eriberto Rodriguez. And so I will call him Harry. H-E-R-Y, Harry wrote back to me that, okay, we're probably not related because Rodriguez is a very common name. He really related to my story because he has someone personal in his life who was in a similar situation, is also adopted and was searching. Also that he really felt like he had enough mm, resources in his life that he might be able to help. So that and had to be really encouraging. Yeah. Very, very much so. I mean, his response was the only one that even said, I think I might be able to help you with this. He was the only one who said, I, I think I can help. He's retired now, but at the time he was working in a government job, as I understand it. And when I say government job, like like a Department of Agricultural type of job. I mean, nothing like CIA where he finds people kind of a job. He started off asking everybody that he knew. He would share the story with people in his office, with friends, with people that he knew in other government office positions. I mean, he just shared the story with everybody. And I think I first connected with Harry about 1998. Right off the bat, within that first maybe nine months or so, he was able to get marriage certificates for aunts and my birth mother's birth certificate. Wow, that's and, pretty good. Yes, and ultimately the marriage certificate for my birth mother. So now we had another name, her married name, to search for, which is going to make it a little easier than just Rodriguez. I remember when he got that, and like I said, this was maybe nine months or so into us becoming acquainted via the internet, communicating, him talking to other people and all of that. I remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to happen. He sent me an email. This story is so funny to me now. He sent me an email, and the first couple of lines, in, it was in Spanish, were, I think we're really close to finding her. I completely, like, my brain just locked up after that. I couldn't, that, that's all I could read. Nothing else. It was like hieroglyphics on the page. <laughs> yeah. So I printed it off, and I ran two doors down to my neighbor, who is a native Spanish speaker. And I said, please read this to me. I just was like, I couldn't do anything anymore. And so she's looking at it before she starts reading out loud, she's looking at it. And then she points to the bottom of the page and she says, you know, he wrote it in English right here, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is a funny story. <laughs> So, yeah, he had written this whole paragraph in Spanish, right. but then translated it for me below, but I never made it that far. Right, yeah, that's funny. Yes, I mean, and basically that was, like, we found her married name now, and, you mm. know, like, we're getting closer. Yeah. So through the years, Harry and I really established a friendship. We were sending Christmas cards. I was sending family pictures. 
We would send, you know, gifts. He really stayed on this search. In August of 2003, we moved from Cleveland to Indianapolis because of my husband's job. Didn't know anybody in Indianapolis, no friends, no family or anything. Six months or so into being there, I was, I was having a really tough time just with the move. Just stress, not very happy. And I remember Harry writing to me in February of 2004. So it had been about six months that I had been there that he had found my mother's voter registration, my biological mother's voter registration. So again, just talking to somebody in the office and one of the coworkers has her mother has a friend who works at the board of elections and blah, blah. Right. So he was able to get in and see the records and saw that my birth mother was registered to vote using the address and phone number of a friend. And this was an election year, 2004 in Panama. Somebody from his office contacted this friend and asked her to give a message to my birth mother that somebody wanted to talk to her and please come to his office the next day to meet with him. He sent me this email. We're so very close. I found her. I'm going to talk to her tomorrow. And I was just kind of numb. You are in Indiana and he is in Panama? Correct. Okay, got it. This is still email, really. Right. You know, occasionally we'll video chat and whatever, but mostly we are still communicating via email. And actually, I take that back. Email and phone calls. We were not video chatting because at the point that he met her and said, I want to arrange for you all to talk, do you have? And he listed a couple of video chatting platforms that I didn't have or wasn't familiar with at the time. So I ended up talking to her for the very first time via a phone call with him. So So that was February. You got to go back, I think, a little bit because he sets up a meeting with her. Yes. Okay. Yes. He set up a meeting with her. (laughs) Yes. She really didn't know what it was about. I do know that at that time she had been involved in a car accident where like two police officers in Panama drinking and driving had hit her as, as a pedestrian. And so when she gets this message, you need to go to talk to this gentleman at this government office, she thought it had something to do with that. And so she gets there and he described it in an email to me that, you know, she was anxious, but the meeting went very well. And he explained who he was and he asked her if she had a daughter. And she immediately said, yes, I have a daughter. Her name is Christina Rodriguez. She was given for adoption 35 years ago. She says that right off. Right off. Wow. Right off the bat. That was her response to him. Mm. And so I think that they went back to his apartment. He introduced her to his wife. He was able to then pull out all of the pictures and cards and letters and things that we had exchanged over the years. So now she's seeing photos of me, my children, because he and I now have had a six-year relationship, friendship. And so she's able to see all of this. And she asked him to take her to her mother's house, which he did. And I got an email saying, I haven't heard back from her. I don't know what happened, but maybe she'll call me tomorrow. And then she did. Well, he said when he was there, she presented the pictures to her mother and essentially said, do you know who this is? Her mother began crying. Basically what had happened was they had not spoken of it in 35 years. What I later learned was my grandmother was the one who had made the adoption arrangements and handled all of that. My mother did not have knowledge or give consent to this. Right. Wow. I want us to go back just a little bit. Yes. And I'm just imagining when your birth mom learns the news from Harry. Yes. Like, I just imagine it really taking her to her knees, like bringing her this news. Is Did he describe to you how she responded? He did not from her perspective, but I just looking at that email recently, 
what he sent to me was, hello, sister, today you are born again. Mm. (laughs) She is your birth mother. She loves you and she has always loved you. Mm. And that was in all caps. Right. Wow. So I think he more communicated the excitement, the sentiment, more so than telling me specifically how she reacted. Right. But he was really curious about what happened with her mother. What I came to learn, she was very young. She was only 14 when she had me. She was living with her godmother. She brought me home from the hospital. She parented me. And her intention always was to parent me. Right. Her godmother passed away in some months after I was born. And she went back to live with her mother, who I believe at that time was remarried. My birth mother is the oldest of four children with her mother and father. And then her mother also had three more children with the second husband. So she has seven kids all under the age of 15, essentially. And now this baby as well. As I understand it, my birth mother was sent away to what I can, I'd picture as like a boarding school. And I, the baby stayed with my, stayed in my grandmother's home. During this time, Olga, who is my birth mother, I don't know if I've said her name yet, Olga does remember somebody coming to where she was with kind of like, I picture it again as like a clipboard and lots of papers and sign here, but not knowing what she was signing, just that she was putting her name on some papers. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, within whatever time frame this was, she got married. So I'm talking still like 15 years old, got married so that she could get herself out of this place where she was, this boarding school or whatever it was went back to her mother's to get her baby. Mom, where's my baby? And her mother, my biological grandmother, put her finger to her lips, and they never spoke of it again. That must have been just heartbreaking for your birth mother. I can only imagine. Yeah. I do know that they did not speak for about a year's time. Uh, my belief is that the relationship was never fully repaired after that. But I do know for sure that they did not speak for a year after that. Kind of going back to this February of 2004, Harry found her. I talked to her on the phone. April 2nd, I was on a plane on my way to Panama. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And that, plane ride was so, so many emotions. Oh my gosh, so many emotions. And I can remember kind of sitting with these two people that I didn't know on the plane and talking with them, sharing the whole story. And then as we were coming into Panama City, coming in closer for landing, and I started to see the lights of the city and everything, I had a major panic attack. Like, I thought I was dying. You're going to have to call the ambulance when we land. I'm dying. And I think for me, it just was, I'm going home, but I don't know this place. Like, how could this be? And all of it just overtook me in that moment. So you had only been there as an infant. You hadn't been back. So this is like your second time there. Right, but my first time in conscious memory. Right. So I was placed with my adoptive family at 11 months old, and then we left Panama when I was three, and I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So this was my first time returning to Panama since I was three years old. And go through the immigration, all of that, get my luggage, everything. I come out into the airport, and all of these people are waiting So I'm coming out of the gate into the airport. I see Harry's wife pointing at me and recognize this group. I spot Olga. I just literally run into her arms and we stand there. She's holding me and I am just sobbing. I am bawling. 
And I don't know how long we stood there with her just holding me. When I watched the video, there are things that are happening that, of course, in that moment, I don't realize. So I can see one of my aunts, my my birth mother's sister, is like pulling my hair back off of my face and kind of stroking my back. And somebody's directing a cousin to grab my luggage and start heading toward, you know, there's all this stuff going on. But I'm just standing there in my birth mother's arms, just just sobbing. Is Olga's mother there? No, I did not meet her then. I want to say maybe the next day we went to her home. So you got all this family there to greet you at the airport. And what do you do next? We go back to the hotel where I have booked my stay. It's a suite, so Olga's going to stay with me for the week that I'm there. We go to the hotel room. I brought a photo album for Olga that has um, pictures of me from childhood and then all the way up to, you know, marriage and my kids and all of that. I brought that to her for her to have meet aunts and cousins. And we just sit and talk all night, which is kind of funny to me. English. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's kind of funny to me because only Olga and Harry speak English and I don't speak Spanish very well. She does speak English because, again, I had mentioned that at the point that I was born, she was living with her godmother. Her godmother was West Indian, um, Jamaican, I believe, and so taught her English. So she can speak it, but she can't write it, which is all information Harry gave me in an email, you know, in February before I get there. He's like, guess what? She speaks English. And I'm like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. And, and, you know, I'm just thinking of Harry. He must have felt really good about all of this, too. I will never have the words to express what a blessing he was in those days, what a blessing he continues to be, what a generous kind, intelligent, compassionate. I mean, I just, I don't have the words to even describe him and just his level of giving, but he absolutely took all of this in as, as if I was his sister. Um, And that is what we began calling each other through these six years of getting to know each other. And ultimately I started calling him my angel brother, Angel Hermano, and he calls me Hermanita his little sister. I'm Um, so glad you had Harry to help you. And it's just a beautiful story to think that you found your birth mother in another country. It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. It's just a wonderful thing. And I, I know you have, you refer to it being a God thing. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think even with him saying, guess what? She speaks English. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's just a total God thing because God knew that my Spanish was not going to get us anywhere. (laughs) And so he said, I've got to fix this. But when they do find each other, they can communicate. But yes, I do think I think all of it is a God thing. I think Harry was sent to me. He is definitely an angel. He references in his emails, even, you know, when he found her part of his introduction to her was really explaining that God had used him as an instrument to make sure that this happened. I think about times like sitting in the hotel room in Panama that first night and how all of my family are there speaking Spanish. Although I have my mother and Harry both translating for me, I really am still able to follow the conversation and not feel like I'm just sitting in this room with people and not knowing what's going on. Right. There was a day that I went to the office with Harry to meet all of the people that he works with because all of them had been so instrumental in helping him. And a woman really just moved, just started talking and she's speaking in Spanish about what a blessing this is and, you know, and all of this. And she spoke maybe 10, 15 minutes. Harry started translating for me, but then I cut him off and I was like, I understand that was God. He just allowed me to know what she was saying. I don't know how else to explain it, but absolutely. 
Absolutely. The whole thing was just, was a God thing. The fact that I got working in adoption, not knowing what I, what kind of agency I was going to was just, that was where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. I know that you attended Howard University. And so while you were there, did you explore your identity and ethnicity? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I will say that identity is such a thing for adoptees anyway, yeah. right? Yes. I mean, it just is. Certainly for teenagers in every circumstance, teenagers and growing up in their biological families, identity becomes a thing. You start struggling with figuring out who you're going to be in this world, who you are, who you're going to be. As an adoptee, we have that whole added layer of who am I going to be and who am I? Where did I come from? And I went through all of that very tumultuous adolescence. I had lost my adoptive father at four. I mean, within like the year of moving to the States, he passed. And so I think in my adolescence, I had a lot of anger. A lot of that had to do with just teenage angst, trying to figure out who I was. But I think a lot of those abandonment issues started coming up too. Identity was always a thing. My mother told me years later that when she first brought me to the States, her sister, the first thing she said was, oh, but she doesn't look black. And my mother started calling me her little black soul sister. You know, this is going to be late 60s, early 70s. So she's calling me her little black soul sister so that I can feel that I am part of this family, so that I have that sense of belonging. I went to University of Michigan my first year, a PWI, primarily white institution. I really believe that kind of my activism and identity as a black woman began to form at my year at Michigan. Apartheid was still a thing in South Africa. We were protesting the university to divest money out of South Africa. I was wearing a, a bracelet that had Nelson Mandela's name on it. I participated in this protest where a student organization, we had built like a shanty on the middle of the campus to illustrate the conditions that black people in South Africa were living in. We protested because the school didn't give us Martin Luther King Day off. It was the very first year, 1986, that it was recognized as a national holiday. And so I, I had to transfer because basically University of Michigan out-of-state tuition was too high. My mother was like, yeah, we can't do this. So I had to transfer. And at that point, I decided I wanted to go to an HBCU, ultimately decided on Howard. I did have a couple of friends from high school who were there, and that's where I wanted to be. I get to Howard, and like I said, you know, my family's like, oh, my God, what this child has just turned out totally militant, cut my hair off. So the biggest thing was I decided I wanted to pierce my nose, which today's society is not a huge deal. I think every third person has their nose pierced. But we're talking about, like, 1989, and it was a big deal. And so I decided if I was going to do this, it was going to mean something. I'm going to go to the library and do research because, of course, we don't have the Internet yet. And I find something that there's some tribe in Africa that the women whose noses are pierced are the women whose voice is acknowledged. They are the ones who have a say in tribal matters. Right. So I decided I want to be a woman with a voice. That'll be kind of the, the meaning behind me getting my nose pierced. And I call my mom and I tell her all of this. And guess what? I got my nose pierced. And her first thing was, oh, my God, but you're not even black. Mm. Which totally floored me because this is the same mom who called me her little black soul sister. Right. <laughs> Some years before. Mm-hmm. But I think her thinking is very much in line with other people, other Americans in particular that I am black, I am Panamanian, those are not, they're separate. You can't, you're not both. You can't be both. If I am Panamanian, then that excludes me being black. I'm Hispanic or Latina is my preferred term. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, it really was, okay, I've got to figure this out because I know when I look in the mirror, I see these lips and these hips and somebody black had something to do with me. I I need to understand who I am. 
And what I came across, which I think a lot of people just don't, I think we know it, but we don't really put it together in American history and the way things are taught, is that the history of Panama, very much like most Latin American countries, is that we had indigenous people who lived there first, native people, people we call Native Americans, American Indians, indigenous people were there first. Spaniards came in. Europeans came in. Mostly it was Spaniards, Portuguese, French came into all of the Americas and colonized. And in Panama in particular, there was Spanish rule for 300 years. Many, many, many of the Native Americans, the indigenous people died off from disease, from fighting, but many mixed with these Europeans. And then about the 1500s, you had Europeans bringing in large numbers of Africans from the 1500s to the 1800s in all of the Americas. Brazil had the highest number of African people who were enslaved there. But many people in Panama, Africans were brought in to work on railroads, on the railroad, which preceded the Panama Canal. Chinese came in to work on the railroad has the largest Chinese community uh, population of any other Latin American country. And so I'm piecing this together and I'm saying, okay, so then I am black. I, like, I look in the mirror and that's what I see. And what are Hispanic people? What are Latinos? They are mixed race people most often. They can be white. They can be black. They can be Native American, more commonly, they are a mix of two or all three of those. Yes, I'm glad less to Less commonly, that. there could be, yeah, less commonly, you could have Asian race in there as well. So what we look at as your stereotypical Latina, a Jennifer Lopez, is most likely a mixed race person. I do a lot. I watch a lot of Finding Your Roots with um Henry Gates, mm -hmm. and I love the Hispanic, the episodes on um, with Latino guests. You're not going to do a DNA test and come back with something that says Hispanic. There's no such thing. It's not a race. My DNA came back 38% Native American, 32% African, and the remainder was European. I am almost one-third of three races, mm -hmm. almost exactly one-third of the three races that make up the history of the Americas. I'm really glad you shared that. And, and I think the listeners will really get a, a good idea of how better to have um, an understanding <laughs> of how, yeah, about ethnicity. And I know when we talked on the phone um, a couple of weeks ago and you said that in Panama, for example, you, you gave an example that it's about your nationality. It's right. about, yeah, yeah, that it's not, it's not about race. Right. Yeah. And I, I just, I appreciated that conversation we had. So, yeah, you shared a lot sure. here about this. And I think it's, it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had more often. Yeah. It was when I was at Howard, your question really was about Howard and forming my identity. It really was at Howard that I was able to make sense of it. Mm-hmm that I had to put in the work and the research to say, well, yes, I am Latina and yes, I am black. Yes. And then, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, getting my DNA that shows there's 32% African there. So yes, I am black and yes, I am Panamanian, but Latina Panamanian does not indicate race. Mm -hmm. And so I still have to remind my mother on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that yes, I am black. Um, yeah. I feel like that's a, that's a thing mostly here in the United States. We are so very focused on race and we want to know what are you? And I got asked that quite a bit as a child, what are you? And we want to fit people into these nice, neat boxes. And so we begin to think of Hispanic or Latino as separate race when it's not Right. saying that somebody is Latina doesn't tell you anything about their race or even what they look like. Yes. So I know you, you know, you've been a part of Adoption Network Cleveland for many years through your career. This question that I'm going to ask you, it kind of has two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. 
what has been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the adoption community. So you've been, you know, from work and then as an adoptee, so. Yeah. Well, and I think both. It it has benefited me so much, both professionally and personally. I was the adoption manager for the state of Indiana for close to six years. And so I was no longer part of Adoption Network Cleveland, but Betsy had put me in touch with somebody in Indiana who was working on the legislation to open up birth records in Indiana as they were at that time getting things passed in Ohio to do that. I got connected again through Betsy. She's she's always there as part of my story, but connected to, to Pam Krosky at that time and met Marcy. I'm sorry, her last name is escaping me, but Keep who me. ended up, yes. Mm-hmm. That started off, I think, um, that organization is kind of being modeled after Adoption Network Cleveland, like Indiana Adoption Network or something to that effect, which then turned into NAAP. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic really helped get me reconnected because so much was happening virtually. I think, you know, my time in Indiana, my connection to the adoption community was more through work than anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But once we had the pandemic, I was able to reconnect through Adoption Network Cleveland, a lot of the general meetings and things virtually now. So I didn't have to be in Cleveland, but I was still able to be a part of that. Yeah, I I just appreciate you reaching out to me. Uh, I guess, first of all, being on that Zoom meeting where I gave a presentation and yeah, when you reached out to me, I was just like, this is why it's so important to stay connected, you know, Right. because now I, I know your story. It's just an amazing one. And Harry is just an amazing person. Yeah. yeah. And just yeah. for you to have been able to like learn so much about your identity. Yeah. You, you got a lot of questions answered. I just think that's fantastic. And so is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share? Harry had described for me an email that when Olga confronted her basically about it, that she cried whenever they talked about me. In my experience, when I was in Panama in 2004 and five, was that she cried every time I was near. <laughs> she would cry and she would hold on to me. She always needed to be very close. And she told me that she had prayed that God would send me back to them. And I really view her, although I understand the strain between her and my birth mother's relationship, I really view her as kind of in that role of birth mother, a woman who had many young children and was doing what she felt was best for everybody involved. And it was a hard decision for her, but out of the best of intentions. When my adoptive mother picked me up from her house, asked her, where we lived so that she could come and see how I was doing. And my mom can remember her being out in the parking lot of this apartment building, just kind of watching me. If I was out on the the balcony with my brother or something, she would be down in the parking lot watching and making sure that I was okay. So I hold no animosity towards her whatsoever. And I think it was a very difficult thing for her to do. But I'm so thankful for all of the women involved in the story and what they contributed to my life and that my mom was always supportive. And I just feel like my mother handled things so well. And I know, especially listening to your podcast, that not everybody had that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like everybody was praying for you. Yeah, like they were praying for you. And I I actually feel that way in in my story on my maternal side because my Mm -hmm. birth mom talked about me through the years. So everyone knew that I was out there somewhere. And and I Mm -hmm. think that, yeah, there's something going on with that for me to come back into the picture, so to speak, was because of the prayers for my well-being and for me to return. Yeah. It's God thing. <laughs> it's a God thing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I, I just appreciate um, all of your perspectives. You, maybe you'll come back on and we'll talk some more. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> I was really excited. Um, I enjoyed your presentation at the general meeting and was really excited to have this opportunity. I thank you for allowing me this opportunity. 
In case you were wondering who Sandy was referring to at the end, it is her maternal biological grandmother. When I think of Sandy at her home in the U.S. receiving help from Harry in Panama to find her birth mother, it doesn't get much better than that. A God thing in her story makes me smile. I cheer Harry for his tenacity and diligence to assist an adoptee. I agree with Sandy that part of identity will always be bigger than the subject of race. It is often through DNA results that we first discover all sides of ourselves, especially our nationality. I appreciated the mini history lesson that she shared in hopes that we can understand the incorrect implications of labeling someone black. I'm reminded that there is usually more to the story. Sandy's professional connection to Adoption Network Cleveland was her initial contact and transitioned to a twofold relationship with her in her personal life. As a social worker and an adoptee, she has through the years had the opportunity to see the organization's benefit to the community from both sides, helping others and then herself. A win-win. Thank you, Sandy, for reaching out to me to have this conversation. In the short time that I've gotten to know you, I've learned so much about how what seems impossible or unlikely can certainly prove to turn in our favor. I believe that you sharing a part of your journey being born and adopted in another country will encourage international adoptees that there is hope through a plan. And if you met a Harry, then perhaps they can too. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.